Support for WMFE comes from Orlando Science Center, offering four floors of wonder and discovery for families and curious minds of all ages. With exhibits, movies, and live shows that promote learning new skills, exploring fresh ideas, and cultivating a better understanding of the world around us. Tickets and more at osc.org. Space access for all. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Last month, 14 disabled crew members took a trip on a zero-g flight from Houston, Texas, experiencing weightlessness while flying parabolic arcs. Their mission? Conduct research in microgravity. Their goal? Make space accessible for all. The research included testing new safety and communication equipment and demonstrated that passengers with visual and hearing impairments could safely fly in space. We'll hear from members of that crew on the experiments and how their data will help make space accessible to everyone. Astro Access and the mission to make space accessible. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. Astro Access is an organization that promotes disability inclusion in space exploration. It does this by launching disabled scientists, veterans, students, athletes, and artists on parabolic flights through the company Zero-G. The organization launched its first research mission last month, with a crew of 14 conducting numerous experiments during the flight's 18 parabolic maneuvers. The experiments included testing of safety equipment, communication devices, and other accessibility-focused experiments while in weightlessness. Here to talk more about the missions and the experiments, we're joined by Anna Volker, Executive Director of Mission Astro Access, and Astro Access Ambassadors and Researchers, Dr. Carlos Archia Katie and Sheila Sue, who you will hear through an interpreter. A complete transcript of the conversation is available on our website, WMFE.org. Carlos, Sheila, Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much for having us. We will talk about what Astro Access does, and we'll talk about some some policy changes in the future, and we'll talk about research. But first, we have to talk about the actual flight itself, because this is such a cool experience. I, I had the chance to, to fly Zero-G recently, but let's just start by talking about the flight. Carlos, let, let's start with you. It's 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 phenomenal, isn't it? Uh, it is incredible. I mean, it's the... You know, you think about the space travel, there is two very major components about that is the ability to be uh, in zero gravity, be weightless, and the other ability is to kind of do the overview effect, you know, seeing the curvature of the Earth. So with a zero uh, G flight, you actually have one of those. And I had the privilege to have this uh, experience back in March this year. Uh, I was uh, I did it on my own and I, I found the experience not only extremely healing, but very empowering to continue the mission that, that I, I represent. Uh, with Astro Access. And Sheila, what was the experience like for you? Was this your first zero-G flight? This was my first zero-G flight. And ever since I've grown up, I have really loved everything space. So growing up, I've always wanted to experience zero gravity. That's something I've always wanted to do. You know, I wanted to experience it one way or another. So I was really excited that I could do it this time around, especially since many people told me I couldn't do it since I'm a deaf person. And so finally being able to have this opportunity was awesome. And to be with such a great crew of deaf people. So within the group, we were talking about you can't really explain zero G to someone who's never experienced zero G. It's similar to I'm trying to explain someone what chocolate tastes like when they never actually tasted chocolate before. And I really thought that was a funny way to explain it, but it's true. It's really true to be 
in zero G and to be floating around weightless is just a total experience that's hard to explain to people. And then also while doing experiments simultaneously, uh, it was a lot of work, um, but we were able to be successful in all the research that we did. I was a part of four experiments. And so that was an awesome time. Sheila, did you were you prepared for that moment when when you left the 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 floor of the plane? It's a very odd feeling, right? I mean, I know you said it was very difficult for people to describe it to you, but do you did you feel prepared or was it just a completely new experience for you? So uh, I have gone scuba diving before and people often say scuba diving can be similar to the experience of zero gravity. But to be honest, it's still very different. I feel as though, you know, you still have things around you in when you're scuba diving as opposed to there is nothing around totally weightless and there's no nothing connecting you to that. Uh, so I wasn't quite ready for that experience, to be honest. Um, and you definitely can't compare it to scuba diving. I would agree. I would agree, Sheila. Uh, Anna, let's talk about your your experience. What was it like? I mean, this is this is a. Uh... You know, your organization, you're taking, uh, you know, a crew of people that are a part of this organization and also experiencing it yourself. What was that flight like? Absolutely. Yes. So I I had the pleasure and privilege of flying on our inaugural mission last year in 2021. Uh, So this was my second time around. So I knew a little bit more what to expect. But, uh, you know, I don't think... I don't think you're ever quite prepared for for the sensation. <laughs> and as Sheila said, everyone was doing a wide uh, uh, array of experiments. Uh, so I think that that's something, you know, as Sheila said, she was part of four different research projects. Uh, Carlos similarly had multiple experiments that he was performing. And for many of our ambassadors, it being their first time in zero gravity, I think it's really a, a testament to their skills to to acclimate so quickly and then to dive right into the research because that's really what what we were there to do is is get this research done and to be pushing pushing access forward as we start to really investigate accessibility uh, uh, beyond beyond Earth. Let's talk a bit about that research because um, when I got to go, I didn't have to work very hard. I just got to enjoy myself. Uh, you all are doing multiple experiments. Carlos, talk to me a little bit about the the experiments that you worked on 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 this flight. Yes, uh, definitely. We all were very busy. Uh, in addition to enjoying the experience, doing some experiments that we hope that is going to be opening the door not only for people with disabilities to enjoy and be part of the space exploration and space travel, but in, we really applied those learnings uh, to here in society and to definitely promote solutions for everyone here on Earth. So, in my first original flight in March, uh, although I was kind of more like a tourist, uh, I negotiated to uh, to do one of the experiments, which is believed to be the first time in history that has been done. Uh, I'm someone with uh, eye disease, so I wanted to measure my eye pressures uh, in zero gravity, something that's never been done by someone with active uh, eye disease. Uh, And it was great. It was definitely the the numbers were very similar to the observations that have been made by healthy volunteers aboard the ISS and uh, and other uh, flights uh, uh, prior. Uh, during the flight that we did, which we had two flights, one flight in November uh, that was out of Fort Lauderdale and another one in Houston, uh, I, I participated with another ambassador, Kaylee Looney. She was representing our neurodiversity group, and we did a series of experiments. One was a something simple, which is testing a five-point restraint uh, harness on, for the seat, uh, something that we actually expanded in the flight to. And believe it or not, this is something very important for the space uh, tourism and space agencies. 
because they want to be sure that someone can get in and out uh, of the seat if something goes wrong within 30 seconds. Uh, and I think that was very, uh, we definitely were able to accomplish that. Another experiment, uh, you know, because I have a medical background, I wanted to be sure that for people with low vision, you can get intravenous access in space without having the skills of a nurse or a physician. So we tested that some of the tools that we have here that actually calibrate well in zero gravity, and they did. And then another one that was very important uh, was an experiment in collaboration with NASA's uh, Solar System Exploration Research Vilcher Institute that is also known as SURVEY. And the principal investigator, Dr. Alice Parker, which we were testing um, a miniature spacecraft, a, kind of the size of a beach ball, and uh, that is designed for this space exploration to, in the future, be able to land in an asteroid, either for uh, that we're going to experiment, uh, that we're not going to find out more, or we're going to do some potential asteroid mining. Sheila, what about you? You said you had four experiments on the flight. Tell me a bit about what you were investigating and and uh, what you were able to find. Yes, yeah, so I was a part of the deaf and hard of hearing crew. And in our group, we I represented a few different experiments. So one was the American Sign Language Experiment, was uh, to see if we could understand each other in American Sign Language in zero gravity. So, uh, you know, depending on a deaf person and what language they use, some deaf people use speaking and listening, some deaf people use American Sign Language, I use both. Um, and so I was able to participate in all four of the experiments because of how I function through the world. So the one experiment, another experiment was the light experiment, which was a set of colored lights that would let us know when we were entering and exiting zero gravity. And so that was a visual representation of what was happening around us. And that was successful. We could all see the lights um, around us. And so if all of a sudden you're in space and you lose your hearing, that would be a backup thing to be able to see and um, knowing what they correspond with. I also was in another experiment uh, testing um, to see whether or not cochlear implants and hearing aids will stay on during zero gravity. And that was also successful in our experiment. Our, my cochlear implant did not fall off while I was in zero gravity. You know, for example, right now we're using a lot of technology nowadays. AirPods are really popular. And so this is another way in which the technology of deaf and hard of hearing people will benefit um, other people who don't, who are not deaf or hard of hearing. And then the other experiment I was in um, required uh, using listening skills. Uh, it's called Sonic Cloud. And I had to wear a set of headphones and I had to listen to, because the environment is so noisy, it's difficult to hear the commands and the cues. And so we tested it through one-way communication. Uh, another person would be wearing the headset and they would speak into the headset to me and uh, I would be able to respond and uh, let them know what I was able to hear during that. So for me during that experiment, uh, we initially had a word list where we ran through all the words and I was able to receive about half of the words uh, that way, um, which is pretty good uh, considering how noisy the environment is. And then uh, the final experiment, since I am an American Sign Language user and I worked with my uh, peer, Eric Shear who's also an American Sign Language user, we wanted to make sure we could communicate in zero gravity. You know, as we are flipped upside down, can you truly understand someone in American Sign Language? And it was effective. We were able to understand each other. There were a few situations where we weren't able to understand each other in the sense of whether it was a question or a statement. 
um, that's shown in American Sign Language through the movement of your eyebrows. And so that was a little more difficult to see when you're spinning around to be able to understand whether or not it was a question or a statement. So that's, you know, we had a lot of great data that we require, we got during this experiment. And I'm looking forward to see what happens with the information that we got. Also, I think this is extremely beneficial. If all of a sudden you lose your hearing or it's too noisy, there are other ways to communicate in space using American Sign Language facial expression. So it's definitely adaptable to space. That's fascinating. I, I didn't even think about the orientation of, of where you are would have an, an effect on how you're able to communicate through ASL or, or, or other methods. Anna, is that is that the whole point of this is is to raise awareness of, of these issues that many people may not even be thinking about? Yes, absolutely. And, and more so to Sheila's earlier point, it's also about highlighting the the aspects that are beneficial for everyone. And so this kind of gets to the heart of Astra Access which is promoting universal design. So universal design is this idea that we should be designing our space systems and our technologies for the widest audience possible. And that in turn benefits not just those who have historically been excluded, but everyone. And I think Sheila's experiments are a really great example of that. As, as she pointed out, a sign language would be incredibly valuable for hearing astronauts alike if your comm systems go out. Or if, for example, Sheila actually did a test also with pressurized flight suits, and they were so noisy that all of the hearing people couldn't really communicate with each other. But Sheila and her fellow deaf ambassador, Eric Shear, were able to fluently chat with one another while all of the, the hearing trainees were, were unable to. And so here we see this advantage. But this was actually part of a, a pre-flight training that we did in partnership with Uplift Aerospace over at the Biosphere 2 at the University of Arizona. Sheila and a few other of our ambassadors actually uh, underwent some astronaut training with them, including doing this in a scuba environment as well. And so they actually did this entire experiment underwater uh, in partnership with Uplift Aerospace and Chase, which is the Center for Human Space Exploration. And we're able to then recreate that experiment in zero G, kind of, you know, transitioning from the aquatic environment of buoyancy to, to the to the zero G one. So this I mean this this technology that that you're testing, um I'm thinking about, you know, Sheila's experiments and Carlos, your experiments. It, it could very well be used for someone in flight who has an impairment during a mission, right? They suddenly may have lose, lost their hearing or it's a very noisy environment or, Carlos, some sort of vision impairment as well. Uh, I'm wondering, is there an issue that, that these things are, are thought of in that way, that they could be used for people that do not have a disability and that, you know, people that do not have these kind of access right off the bat are, are being overlooked and, and your experiments are just being used in case something happens to someone who, who, who does not have this disability. I don't know if that, that makes sense, Anna. Do you kind of understand where my question is that, you know, this is a second thought, right? I do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, Dr. Sherry Wells Jensen, who's one of the key members of our leadership team and also a member of the, the blind crew, likes to say whether we plan on it or not, disability in space will happen it's a disabling environment. And so people, you know, may become deaf, may, you know, may, may, a disability will occur. And so it's really vital that we set our systems up with this access in mind ahead of time. And, you know, that, that in turn sets, sets our astronauts up for success so that they are able 
to, you know, be contributing members of, of those missions and of those crews. Um, so I think that's a, that's a really excellent point that this isn't just for folks who, you know, have a disability before going to space, right? It's, it's something that, you know, this, this accessibility being built into the design ahead of time is, is really vital for, for setting ourselves up for success in the future as, as humanity adventures further and further out into into space and longer and longer space duration space mission durations so i think that's a, a really excellent point and and i'd love to hear sheila and carlos if you have any thoughts to add on that so all humans will have a disability at some point in their life and you know if we truly want to live and you know if people are talking about living in space in the future then that means someone who will eventually get to space will have a disability and whether it's before during or after and so it's important for us to be able to have accessibility embedded in the system and that it is then ready if all of a sudden it happens if it's already there um, but just to make sure that it's included from the beginning space is dangerous right there is it's not necessarily friendly to human life. So if you know we're thinking about all the different aspects that go into human life and what could happen up in space, if all of a sudden you break a leg and you can't walk, you know what will happen to you and what type of information and research is happening with that? That's happening with astro access. All of our experiments are contributing to that point, and so I hope that that makes sense. I mean, I think you know always speak about the innovative mindset that people with disabilities have, and how can we actually expand that innovative mindset to everyone that is participating in this kind of venture or any venture in life? Uh, you know, people with disabilities who are very resilient. Uh, we have a lot of determination and empathy. But in addition to that, we are innovators. You know, we innovate every day to accommodate to a world that's not designed for us, and that innovation mindset can help us not only innovate in the solutions going forward in the future, but how can we adapt quickly and in an innovative fashion if something goes wrong. You have heard about some of the examples of what happened in the mirror station in 1997 when there was a fire and the lights went out and it took about 12 minutes for them to put out the fire. And we always wonder if it's someone that is used to blindness or darkness would have responded a little bit faster. And so we always say that probably we need to start seeing disability as an asset, not as a limitation, and an asset that we can all benefit from that. And we can also teach others to have the same innovative mindset when they venture into this environment. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're speaking with Anna Volker, Executive Director of Mission Astro Access, and Astro Access Ambassadors and Researchers, Dr. Carlos Archia Katie and Sheila Sue. Our conversation continues after the break when we'll look at how this research can help all spaceflight participants and what's needed in the short term to ensure space access for all. Stay listening. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. We continue our discussion on Astro Access's first research flight. 14 disabled crew members took a trip on a zero-G flight from Houston, Texas last month, experiencing weightlessness while flying parabolic arcs. Their mission, conduct research in microgravity. Their goal, make space accessible for all. 
Our conversation continues with Anna Volker, Executive Director of Mission Astro Access, and Astro Access Ambassadors and Researchers, Dr. Carlos Archia Katie and Sheila Sue, who you will hear through an interpreter. A complete transcript of this conversation is available on our website, wmfe.org. You all are, are paving the way for the for the future, but in, in the near term, are there opportunities for people with disabilities now to get to space in the near term? We've got, you know, things like zero-G, obviously, but there's also, you know, commercial space, and in the not-too-distant future, there are going to be commercial space stations. Do you feel that the opportunities are there now? And, and if not, what needs to happen? I'll, I'll jump in here, but then I'd love to hear uh, Sheila and Carlos. Um, I think that what Astro Access is doing right now is actively creating those opportunities. And what we are really doing uh, is using these zero G flights uh, as stepping stones towards, towards space flight. And that's something that we're, our team is actively working on in order to secure uh, spaceflight opportunities for, for our ambassadors and for astronauts with disabilities. Um, and as you said, that's, that's closer in the future than I think a lot of people realize with all of these commercial spaceflight opportunities coming up. And, and beyond that, to the point of commercial space stations, we are actively talking with and connected with every company building a commercial space station in the world today. And this is really vital because if we can make the destination accessible, then that really redefines, you know, who gets to go to space and who is that for if we can create accessible space stations from the start as opposed to retrofitting afterwards. And that has so many, so many draws and so many appeals, not only from the point of view of being what's what's just and what's equitable, but also in terms of the commercial viability of these space stations. When we look at, you know, people with disabilities uh, are the largest minority group in the world, uh, 25% of U.S. citizens. And when we look at the over 65 population, which is the population most likely to be purchasing one of those commercial tickets, it's 46%. So almost one in two of your potential customer base has some type of disability. And so it's really critical <laughs> that that these companies are thinking about accessibility. And so we have started those, those conversations and connections um, with the ultimate goal of working in partnership with these organizations uh, to ensure accessibility in the design of the space stations. And we're at this pivotal moment in history where we actually have the opportunity to do that, to really d define the future generation of space architecture, which is something that is just mind boggling to even say, <laughs> but that's where we are right now. It's, it's getting designed as we speak, the designs are being drawn up and a, a major goal for Astro Access within those conversations is to ensure one, that disabled people are at the table and are contributing to those design solutions. And two, that what ultimately gets built is built with everyone in mind. And in addition to the the space stations that are going to be commercial, uh, most of them uh, going forward, we also are engaging with space tourism companies to say we can make space travel also an inclusive uh, uh, experience for everyone. So we're not only saying it can be done. We have proof that it can be done, but we can also develop the know-how that we can share with them so we can have an inclusive experience. I always say that if we can make disability inclusion in the final frontier, 
it can serve as a model of achieving disability inclusion across all frontiers right here on Earth. And Sheila, what, what needs to happen in, in the near term to make sure that there is this, this access for all? So, you know, I remember I'm in business school, so I'm thinking a lot about the space sector and the enterprise. And I have been talking a lot with my classmates about this and uh, several professors as well. So I do believe uh, that we have so many commercial opportunities in the future specifically for technology regarding accessibility, also the uh, making sure that that accessibility makes it to the space industry. The technology that's happening in space could uh, could be tra- it's transferable to on earth as well. And so we want to make sure that that's happening and that it's going vice versa as well. So specifically in the MIT Media Lab, I was reading an article about what they were doing there and there is someone doing a research project there that I loved. Um, And what that was is they are using a microphone that does a, um, you can silently speak to yourself through the microphone. So the microphone um, comes up through your ear and uh, this person is not deaf. It's not necessarily a full microphone, but it's more of like, uh, it looks like an old Bluetooth piece that connects um, from your ear to your mouth. And so you're able to speak softly through yourself to the headpiece. Uh, and that technology is recognizing that. And I think that that's definitely applicable to space so that um, you're able to then communicate through that technology to someone else so that it's able to pick up so much more. And so there's so many different types of things happening in different industries. And so it would be great to see them all come into one. And also talking about um, on the zero G flight. So example, the lights are beneficial for me as they're changing different colors, but that benefits so many other people as well. And so when we are building the space station, they should build in lights that are different colors so that people are able to rely on those in the future. And then also that the investors see the value in investing in technology and these types of places as well. Um, and, And also making sure that we can walk the talk. We're talking a lot about it, but let's put our money um, where we're speaking about and make sure that that happens. And if I may add, in addition to a medical degree, I have a business degree. And I always say that we're always looking for what is the next uh, economic engine of the future. And we're talking about the space industry being a tremendous part of that economic engine going forward in the next decade, generating another one to two trillion dollars in revenues that will create three million jobs and create opportunities for all. But another untapped economy is what we call the disability economy, which is we still have a lot of problems and unmet needs that the solutions that we are developing in space can actually generate solutions for the disability economy. And we're talking about adding another $2 trillion to the economy and creating tremendous opportunities for all. And, uh, and we can do it in a sustainable way. This is not mutually exclusive. Another aspect that you say in the short term is democratizing a space investment uh, by any individual. So all of us can actually invest in that future, both in the disability economy and the space economy. And that can be something that anyone can have access to. Anna, Carlos, Sheila, thank you so much for, for sharing your experience and, and joining us for this absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you to all of you. It has been an honor. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. There's a complete transcript of this conversation available on our website at WMFE.org. 
If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Subscribe on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org. Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Our producer is Beatrice Oliveira. Script editing from Nicole Darden-Creston. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.